Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacey Jones, the founder of Influencer Marketing and Branded Content Agency, Hollywood Branded. This podcast provides brand marketers a learning platform for top experts to share their insights and knowledge on topics which make a direct impact on your business today. While it is impossible to be well-versed on every topic and strategy that can improve bottom line results, my goal is to help you avoid making costly mistakes of time, energy, or money, whether you are doing a DIY approach or hiring an expert to help. Let's begin today's discussion. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacy Jones. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacy Jones. I'm so happy to be here with you all today and want to give a very warm welcome to Roy Taylor, the founder and CEO of Riff, a new tech startup designed to change the way we think of and use images. Roy is not only a vocal advocate for immersive technologies, including virtual reality, augmented reality, and artificial intelligence. He also has quite the film background and is the director for the board of the British Academy of Film and Television Arts in Los Angeles and a technology advisor to three film schools. On our podcast today, Roy is here to talk about how the technology his team has created can lead to a change in the future of product placement through artificial intelligence and visual computing. We'll learn how Riff works and what brands need to be aware of. Roy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Roy, you have a passion for bringing technology to film, television, video games, and virtual reality. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to where you are doing what you do today? Yes, thank you for the chance to do that. Um, I started my career um, by deciding that I wanted to work doing what was most fun. And in my case, that was playing video games. So in, uh, in 1998, uh, I, was, uh, I had my own business uh, working selling semiconductors. And uh, a friend of mine told me about this company called 3DFX that made a hardware accelerator that could make video games look beautiful. I tried it. I thought it was wonderful and decided that was how I wanted to spend my life. Um, so from there, I went to work for a company called NVIDIA, and I was the first vice president, the first senior executive for them working out of my bedroom in 1998. And uh, we started out in a very, very modest way, and the business grew and grew and grew. And it was a spectacular success selling uh, NVIDIA graphics processors. Uh, along the way, I had to learn how to invent a style of business because you can't buy graphics processors. You have to buy what's called an adding card. And I invented a new way of doing business uh, to do that. And so that was so successful. That brought me to America. And so I started to roll, roll out this kind of ecosystem business model worldwide. Worked at NVIDIA then in America until 2010 and then decided that I wanted to kind of move on and, and do something in a, in a similar field but some but different. So I went from working in 3D in video games to working in 3D in, uh, in film and television. And as I did that, I started to become aware of some of the advantages but also potential pitfalls around the, uh, the placement of actors and objects and scenes in depth. And so that learned, uh, led me to learn around about 3D and then VR and augmented reality because they're all related to this depth issue and opportunity. And through that work, I got involved with BAFTA, as you mentioned in the introduction. Um, I got to work with Jin Chabin and the fine people over at the Advanced Imaging Society. And I got to start working with film schools 
advising on how to use depth and technology in storytelling. And from there, I had some, a wonderful time working for a company called Master Image, which then became Real D. And then I uh, worked for another company called AMD uh, and set up a studio for them in Hollywood, advising uh, film directors, producers, and technologists on how to use technology for future storytelling until uh, the early part of the uh, middle part story of last year, I set my own company up, Riff, which is aimed at uh, taking the, the next step forward in applying technology to storytelling by allowing you to change the pixels on the screen based on the viewer. So that's a, a very quick potted history of my career. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating one in a lot of technology and software. And that makes sense since you only started your company last year with Riff and you know, you're not even really more than a year in and you have a viable product that you are putting out on the market and looking at ways that you can build it. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a lot of hard work. I'm sure I have no doubt for someone who has been living in this world of product placement and seeing companies pop up over the decades. Um, I think that you have actually gotten it to a place that is further than a lot of your predecessors who have been trying to create some different evolutions in product placement. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about Rift? So I know you said it's about changing pixels on screen and that that's a really great way to describe changing out, you know, a, an image or a, a appearance of a product, but can you kind of give us a little bit more of a deeper dive about what Riff actually does and what it offers to advertisers? Yes, absolutely. The, the One of the kind of spurs for the company um, came because there is a process taking place right now in television whereby um, large companies, technology companies are offering to scan back catalog for TV studios. And the reason for that is because uh, a lot of TV companies are finding out that they have catalog inventory of shows going back to 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, the last 50 years plus. And they very often don't actually know what's in the content. So they may know the name of the show and a couple of the stars, but they couldn't tell you what was in the story or who else was there, what co-stars were there or extras. And so these scans are taking place to try and detect what is in the back catalog. And there's many millions and millions of hours of this. Well, it seemed to us that there's a certain irony that when you make a frame of film or television, at the time that you are making it, you know everything which is in that frame. If it's real, you have the, the manifest file. You know exactly where uh, you know, an actor's shirt came from or for a table or a prop. And if it's digital, then you have all of the metadata. And not only that, but at the time that you're constructing that frame, you also have absolute edit control. You can change and swap anything in or out. Until such time as you push final render and flatten the video, and then everything's lost. All the data is lost, all the control and edit is lost. And so uh, a friend of mine asked me, do you believe that there is a way that one day you could 
broadcast frames of film and television such that the elements in the frame were not um, compressed, not flattened, and that the compositing actually would take place in front of the viewer, on the fly. And my answer to him was yes, because that is the video game industry. If it were any other way, you couldn't blow things up or drive vehicles or interact with them. Now, the difference, of course, is that video games look like video games, and film and television, even if it's animated, looks beautiful, and the, and the quality is, is that much higher. On the other hand, the video game industry has to do some really complicated math that the film world and TV world does not. It has to send data packets in a fractions of a millionth of a second all the way to career and back so you could snipe somebody when you're playing online. It has to refresh the screen 90 times a second instead of 30, and it has to do that at full resolution. Very, very difficult to do all of that photorealistically. And yet, Stacey, if I ask you, do you believe that processes will continue to be more powerful in the future? The answer, of course, is yes. Well, if we believe that, then we must ipso facto believe, agree that those two worlds are on a collision course because with more powerful cloud-rendered processing, we can make the video game infrastructure deliver photorealistic imagery that is both editable and uh, traceable with all of the data and all of the information. So we'll always know exactly what was in it. But more importantly, we can allow ourselves to edit it if we so wish. That's the premise of Riff. Well, that is quite the premise. And so what you're talking about at the very base of it is how to actually create a layered file, if I'm correct. So how you actually can in film and television bring in, since everything is compressed and flattened out, uh, and I may be getting ahead of myself because our listeners don't know some of these things yet, but you actually bring in objects like brands into those scenes in order to make them be part of the content, right? That are then changeable. Yes, yes. we could take uh, we can take products out, or we can put them in. And uh, since with OTT streaming, we know who the viewer is, we could do that on a per viewer basis, so that um, you get to see products in the scene which are appropriate both for you, and this is very important always appropriate for the storyteller and the content owner. We are always respectful of the art and always respectful of the storyteller. So we would never ever put anything in the scene that wasn't uh, uh, absolutely appropriate for the story being told. Nevertheless, we can also then make it appropriate for the viewer too. Right. So therefore, what you're saying is, the viewer at home, if they have a particular affinity or a known uh, target based off of how the content is being served up through IP addresses and the like, you can actually target what you are presenting to the viewer through the content. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for example, it might be entirely appropriate that you would have um, some kind of snack from General Mills for a U.S. audience, 
but you may want to change that snack for when the show gets shown in Israel or South Africa or Turkey or Spain or somewhere else. You could change the snack without changing the narrative or doing anything which would de, you know, take away from the story being told entirely appropriately, as an example. Okay. And so how does your company work with filmmakers? Is it from the very beginning where they're going to production and you say, hey, we'd love to bring this technology into your content, uh, let us set it up? Or is it something that after the production has finished and they're in final edit or beyond, that you can actually go in and manipulate and add layers into the content to provide the photorealism of the brands within the content? Yeah, we can go on set and do it as the content is being made, or we can go after the fact. We can scan existing inventories and then uh, allow the insertion of of appropriate brands uh, working with the content owner that work for the content owner after the fact for existing inventories. So we can support both. Okay. And for listeners who might not know the whole world of product placement and how it works, traditionally, you know, anything that is going to be seen in a movie or TV show, that is coordinated before filming really commences. So the prop master or the set decorator or the transportation coordinator who's dealing with the cars or the wardrobe stylist who's dealing with clothing, they are doing outreach and they are securing brands that are going to help lend reality to their scene or they're going to help offset costs so the production doesn't have to purchase products that they need. Like every time someone has a phone, production would have to buy that phone unless a phone manufacturer actually provided it to them. Um, Same thing with cars, same things with lots of big ticket items, as well as little ticket items like in grocery store scenes, which add up very quickly. And so, Roy, your technology allows, instead of being all in the beginning of figuring out what brand fits in the scene uh, and how it's going to be used and sending it to the production and having it on set, your technology is actually allowing people at the end of that shoot to be able to trade out and update that product line, correct? Absolutely. And in fact, not at the end of the shoot, but when the, uh, after the final wrap, takes place. Um, so it, we have uh, an absolute flexibility. You know, it's interesting, a friend of mine uh, is a director and uh, he was telling me about uh, this current process. And, uh, and he said, of course, you know, it's wonderful to have a product placement industry that will help him both finance the film, uh, you know, add, reduce the cost of production, and then delivered to him some of the products he wants to make that particular scene. All of that he likes. On the other hand, being asked to stop in the middle of filming because the actor isn't holding the product in the right way is not so welcome. Uh, a brand which demands to see the, uh, the dailies is not so welcome. And of course, from the brand's point of view, not making it through to final cut after final cut isn't so great. Or an expensive, um, lengthy, and uh, you, you know, very important placement that then gets lost because the director pans left by two inches. That isn't helpful either. So you know, my, one of my messages would be to anybody that works in the industry currently is, um, look, we can help. <laughs> we can help with all of that. 
first of all, you don't have to go on set. There's no need for anybody to go on set again. Uh, so that's going to be very, very welcome, I believe, by the, by the storyteller, but the directors and the producers. Um, but it's also going to add enormous flexibility in terms of what can go into the scene. Mm-hmm. You also have tremendous opportunity for resale. You may only put a brand in right now once with the audience in mind for being North America. But now you have the ability to resell that placement for Canada and resell it again for Mexico and resell it again for Portugal and on and on and on. That kind of flexibility, I believe, is going to create enormous, enormous opportunities, uh, both for brands to get access, who might not. I mean, you may well, for example, be enormously enthusiastic to try and get into a particular movie only to find that you've been outbid. Or this way, you could say, well, I I was outbid for North America, but I still really, really like to be your brand partner for for Mexico. And now that's entirely uh, possible. So I I understand uh, your question, your point of view from the disruption is going to cause from a long established industry. But I also believe that that with that disruption is going to come an enormous, enormous amount of wonderful opportunity and very exciting opportunity for a lot of people. Sure. And I think, you know, one of the biggest hurdles with all of this is that a lot of people totally don't get the power and value of product placement. It's still surprising. I've been doing this for over 23 years now. And there is beliefs that, you know, seeing a brand within a piece of content won't actually make a sale happen. And it's incorrect. It's, you know, the same type of advertising when you see an ad and a print advertisement or a billboard or you see a TV ad or you see social uh, posts about it. All of it's reinforcement. So people do get a massive amount of benefit from having product placement in movies and TV shows. Uh, but there is a scalable learning uh, that needs to still happen for brands to see that there's going to be an opportunity for them to pay dollars to be in all of this content um, in scenes besides those which they're usually more apt to pay when there's a true story being told around the brand. Um, how are you all helping educate people on this and the need and the want and the power of product placement in content? Well, uh, you make a number of really good points there. So first of all, let me, let me take on the, uh, the question about uh, understanding uh, the perceived value. Uh, I, I would say that uh, that's already getting better. That's the first part, two parts of answering that point. The first part is it certainly seems to be getting better. It looks like you know, we're having some success in winning the argument. The second, part, uh, the second part of the answer is, however, is I believe the perceived value is more, it's going to be a lot easier to demonstrate when we're able to do two things. The, the first thing we can do is we can make sure that the brand integration is appropriate both for the product, the audience, and the scene. Nobody likes to see an obvious uh, brand placement for a brand which doesn't relate to them and doesn't seem to be uh, appropriate for the, for the scene. 
So, for example, if I am a 25-year-old male and I'm watching a film and there is a woman's hair shampoo and it's in the middle of the living room table, you're probably going to say, I don't like that and I don't know how that's going to work for me. On the other hand, if the 25-year-old uh, happens to see uh, it's the hot uh, period of weather and he happens to see an ice cold beer or an iced tea or something which is appropriate to him and makes sense to him, then I think the, the value of that is much easier to, to share. But the other part of this is because we know what is on the scene, on the screen, we can tell you, we're going to be able to produce metrics which will be able to tell you if it was seen. And then what we're going to be able to do is overlay that with your own sales results because we can tell you where it was seen and we can do trials. We can put your iced tea in maybe somewhere like Salt Lake City and we can put an ice cold local beer and maybe in Austin in Texas. And as the brand, you'll be able to see whether the correlation matches the placement to a degree which has never been possible before. And one of the things that's creating a lot of excitement in the meetings I go to is that ability to be able to measure your ROI for brand integration in a way that just did not exist before. Okay. What about the issue of rights holders? So, you know, when we go through the process of working with our clients and putting them on a movie or a TV show, you know, there's actually, it's not just simply, you know, calling them up and saying, hey, use our brands. There's actually a sell-in process. And a lot of times there are a number of decision makers who contractually have rights to say what brand would actually be in a scene. You know, beyond the producer and director, you also have the actors. And so how are y'all going to jump that hurdle right now of having an actor who, let's just say, he has viewpoints on um, certain brands being too edgy for him, or maybe it's an actor who has a lifelong, it's LeBron James, and he has a lifelong contract with Nike. And so he's not going to want to have a box of uh, footwear of Adidas branded in front of him. How are you going to be able to work around the creative issues that always pop up within the world of product placement? Right. So the, uh, that's a good question. So thank you. And of all the questions that get asked, it seems like the toughest. Actually, actually, it's the easiest. And the reason for that is because all of those rights you mentioned already exist and already get negotiated. They don't happen currently without those permissions. So we don't have to reinvent permissions. They already exist. There's an entire industry for them. So uh, in fact, if you, if you just Google uh, rights management, you'll find hundreds and hundreds of companies which exist to do just that. But what I point out to people um, that occasionally, and, and sometimes sadly, more than occasionally, there is an issue. Those issues can be extremely stressful, extremely, particularly if it's a very important piece of, uh, you know, a talent actor associated with the issue. And even more stressful, if that issue might mean 
that the project is put on hold, or even worse, it has to be taken off air or out of distribution. And I'm sure you must know yourself, Stacey, many, many horror stories, having worked in this industry, of where that's happened. Now, when I point out to people that literally within seconds that problem can go away, that we solved, we can just take the offending product out of the scene, then I see a huge change in reaction to the question. Because we're not just about putting things into the scene, we can also take things out of the scene. In the past, and I call that the uh, Henry Clavel moustache issue. You know, when Henry Clavel had to wear a moustache in one film and he wasn't allowed to have a moustache in the other film, and then the studio spent millions of dollars in post-production trying to remove the moustache. <laughs> okay, well, for us, it's not millions of dollars. It's a, it's a few clicks. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, the issue of rights management, we become not a challenge, but a very, very welcome solution. Okay. And how are you going to, how are y'all going about educating Hollywood right now on these opportunities? So are there real TV shows and feature films that brands could get involved in today, or is that still a little bit off into the near future? No, we're hoping, all being well, we're hoping to be on air with our first show this month. That's exciting. So if anybody is uh, listening and is interested about engaging with us, um, then we would love to hear from them. Okay. And what are the typical costs involved? Is it CPM based or how are you projecting costs for brands to become involved? So we, um, we, will, uh, we are going to have a model which will be CPM based and which in the future will be auctionable. So the, the tagline is, is our plan is to become the Google AdWords of the moving image. So what will happen is if you have a brand, you'll be able to uh, go online, uh, uh, search a particular scene or actor or show, and then you'll be able to do a search, and we'll come back with the search results and tell you all the opportunities to be integrated. You'll only be able to do that for products that are whitelisted by the content owner. Um, so you wouldn't be able to put alcohol in any scene with a minor, that kind of thing. There'll be a whitelist and a blacklist. Mm -hmm. And then what we'll be able to do is we'll give you results just like Google AdWords does and charge like Google AdWords does. But that's the future. Right now what we're doing is case-by-case uh, -case pricing. And uh, the, the strongest reaction we've had is, my goodness, are you sure you can afford to do it that cheaply? But because of the way the model we have and the way we do it, we can afford to be price aggressive to a degree that is shocking everybody that we are talking to. That's terrific. Getting back a little bit into rights holders and why brands are chosen to be in scenes and how you guys are going to work around it. You know, a lot of times a brand will be chosen because it enhances a character, right? So we know that it is high-end character, he or she um, wears the best of the best, buys of the best, and only those brands that would epitomize that would be actually associated. 
So are you with this almost programmatic structure that you're suggesting? Would you be whitelisting then only brands that would be appropriate so that you have, you know, your Tiffany's in one scene of a box and not necessarily your Jared's when it's supposed to be a extremely high end uh, jewelry placement? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm glad you asked, asked to revisit the question um, because it gives me a chance to re-emphasize this point. We will never, ever put a, uh, a product into a scene ever that doesn't have the full permission, authorization, comfort, and total uh, approval of everybody who's involved in that scene. Mm -hmm. The content owner, the talent, the producer, the director, everybody. So we will never seek to impose anything into that scene which should not be there and which is not approved. That is, that is every company has their thou shalt not, and that is ours. We will never do that. That's but, great. But let me repeat. You may, for example, say that this particular uh, actor and this particular um, uh, film or TV show is very appropriate that this actor, for example, has a strong liquor. And so it absolutely makes sense that they would have, I know, uh, what a, a particular brand of whiskey. But it might also be entirely appropriate that you have um, Suntory for, for when it's in Japan, and you might have Tito's for when it's in Texas, mm -hmm. and it might be Smirnoff for when it's in uh, the UK, and it might be Grey Goose when it's in France. I don't see any reason why within a range, and only a range which is approved by, but a range of products, we could still meet the needs of the story, the director, and the talent. Okay. And how do you approach, you know, are, you know, are you projecting that Riff will be the product placement solution, so there won't still be traditional product placement being done, or is it an accompaniment, an accompaniment and a, an enhancement? Well, so the, first of all, I would not ever be as arrogant as to presuppose I could walk in on an existing 50-year-old industry and change things like that. That's just, that's not who I am personally, and it's not, it's not my company, not our company. Um, in the same way that there are people that will always want to do things in a particular way, there will always be traditional placement. I'm absolutely certain of it. In the same way that Christopher Nolan still wants to, you know, a film using traditional film, 70 millimeter, and, and so on. It'll always be around. We will be there for those times when it's appropriate and for those films and TV shows where it's helpful. There may still be some times when there isn't, and there'll still be some people who say, you know, I just don't want your technology near my particular production. And that's okay. This is an enormous, an enormous industry. I think PQ Media came out with the latest results, which said that um, brand integration slash product placement in 2018 was $15.6 billion. Mm -hmm. That's a big, that's a big business. That's plenty enough big, enough, uh, big business for Riff. Sure. So I believe that we uh, will be successful. I think that we can be very, very helpful to a content industry which has had to deal with anything from actors that suddenly say inappropriate things and become a problem to phones which suddenly catch fire 
um, to brands which suddenly um, are no longer desired because of whatever thing that happened with them. And I think when you think about the amount of money that's been left on the cutting room floor because the brand did, didn't get it past final cut yeah. and the energy and the effort that got wasted in that, we will be an enormously really, really powerful and wonderful tool to save that money. And then I think we seem to look like a friend to the industry rather than a competitive outsider trying to barge his way in. How I would like us not to be seen. How do you then protect, and that's great, how do you protect against, you know, all that content that has been shot and that will be shot where brands have run co-promotional campaigns knowing that they have exclusivity in the film, you know, you know, how do you make sure that the brand deals where really the understanding of it is, is when a brand has provided money or trade out and they've secured a contract with a production, they're not expecting that that production down the line is going to change its after final edit. So, you know, if Bond and Heineken had their big partnership and Heineken spent $50 million in promotional advertising and everyone knew about it, what is their protection? Because they thought that they had it locked down. They're like, oh, we did the film, we shot it, we've done the promotion, we paid our money. What (laughs) is protecting them from, you know, five years down the line, 10 years down the line, another beer company or maybe it's a sparkling vodka in a in a beverage cup what is keeping them safe from the partnerships that they have done where they're not going to have to worry about being cut out absolutely i think it's a a great question first of all they only have to add a single paragraph or two to the contract and that's taken care of um but when you say that as you're saying it, Stacey, I can imagine in your mind's eye, you're thinking about a major film like a James Bond film, for example, with a multi-million dollar deal. Um, and we probably may never get involved or in the middle of that. But the vast bulk of television and film, which is consumed, is not what happens in the first 90-day window of a major $100 million movie. It is when the movie is five years old. It is the rerun of very popular TV shows. And why shouldn't the content owners who spend so much time and so much effort producing some of the greatest stories and entertainment experiences that we ever get to experience, why shouldn't they monetize that? But at the same time, on the reverse of that. Why should they not have a chance? Because right now they can't. And I, I fully agree with you, but on the brand side, as far as protecting the brand, why should they lose out after they took a risk, not knowing if the film or the TV show was going to be successful? And even if it's limited budgets or limited product that they supplied, why should they now on that side of it actually have a potential detriment and no protection? So and this, is, this is something that's going to come up in conversation. I know we're going to be asked about it. And so I'm just Mm -hmm. curious to know, you know, how do you, how do you walk the walk with that? And and what are the answers? And I don't think there's necessarily a hundred percent answers that you can provide that are lock and loaded today. 
is just something to rationalize and think about and talk about because even your little bitty productions that are out there for an independent film, when a brand is thinking about working with it, you know, it's it's a harder selling to get a brand. A, a Bond film is really easy, actually, for large brands to say, yes, we want that. And there's a lot of competition. But then you have thousands of productions that are out there, hundreds that are being produced. Uh, not even I mean, Netflix alone is, what, over 800 now in a year of content that they're producing? Mm-hmm. Thousands where you're having brands come forward and they are providing their product, their phone, their bottled water, their clothing, whatever it might be. And they're taking a risk on that film by the trade or the dollars that they're paying and not knowing again. And, you know, they're hoping that this is a movie magic moment and that 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, they made this cool decision that they are still going to be talked about at that company long past their days for having done such a smart thing. Brands are going to lose out in the traditional sense if that future forecast is now unstable. So there's a couple of things, a couple of points to answer. And I think I can answer it right now, which is, first of all, just because you can doesn't mean that you will or you should. So because you can change, it doesn't automatically mean that it will be changed. There is absolutely no reason for those relationships or those brands to feel threatened. All they have to do is to say, we agree that this placement is in perpetuity, and that's it, it's done. That's the end of it. So the protection is actually really, really simple for them. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, you just made a very interesting uh, statement. You said they think that they're gonna be there for five, 10, or 25 years. I can hardly think of a single brand that's kept the same look and feel for that period of time. Even even like Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. the bottles have changed. The logo may be similar, but the colors may change. So they may, may, may benefit enormously from Riff mm-hmm. because they can keep their brand look and feel up to date. That's a great point. And they can also localize it. Right. You know, when you're a Coca-Cola and, you, and the, you're in a particular movie for North America, but you want to change it, for example, in Indonesia, you may want to, the, the, the American logo uh, style Coca-Cola logo doesn't work very well. So in Indonesia, they have a very distinctive, very different look. Well, for Indonesia, you wouldn't go to a post-production company, it would just be too expensive. With us, it'd be very easy. Right. Or for example, um, if you are in the Middle East, mm-hmm and you want to change the whether Coca-Cola has a very different logo again. Coca-Cola is an interesting one because they have very distinctive, you always know it's Coca-Cola because of the red, um, but the actual logos are very, very different looking per country. Right. So I would say we're no threat at all. You don't have to use red, but you certainly may be very, very glad we exist when you do want to change it. Sure. And or, or you do wish to re-monetize. Sure. And, you know, for our listeners who may not know, right now localization and post-production happens. So, like, when a movie like The Smurfs, which is super popular in China, shoots, you have Chinese brands who really want to be in that film. But, you know, it doesn't look so good to have these Chinese brands in a film that has, you know, an American audience who doesn't know what these Chinese brands are. And, in fact, they look very different from the brands that we would use. 
So RIF would actually provide a solution that would be far less costly to either, you know, right now what they have to do is they either have to shoot the scene twice and use the different brands, and then they have to do double the editing, or they have to go in post-production and actually layer by layer, scene by scene, each frame has to be changed out, which can take a massive amount of time and money. So, Riff, that's the solution that you all offer as well. Yes, it's absolutely true. That post-production, all refilming is expensive and time-consuming and may still not cover all of your options. Okay. And so I know you this next month are going to actually have a show that is going to be viable for brands. What type of opportunity, like we'll share how they can reach out to you to get involved, but what does a brand need to do to actually get involved? Do they have to provide layered files to you of their image? Do y'all shoot it? Like what are the actual technical to-dos that a brand would need to know about? They're they're so simple as to be shocking. Uh, All they have to do is send us either the 3D models or their image files. And if they don't have those, we can make them for them too. And we can do that generally in around about 24 hours maximum. It is really shockingly easy. And then are the scenes that you're looking at where you're popping in the product or taking it out or moving it around, is it something that is interactive where, you know, is it something that has to be static? The bottle, the product is sitting on a table or could it be in an actor's hands? Yeah, so right now uh, they're static. Now, in the next 18 months, they'll be able to be uh, interacted with by the talent. Okay. And is there anything else that our listeners need to know about how to get involved with this, besides picking up the phone or emailing you? What else do they need Mm -hmm. to know? Um, We're really, really fun, nice people. (laughs) (laughs) But we're, we're not here to go and interfere with people's businesses and disrupt their relationships. We're here to give you the chance to change things, make edits, be flexible and fast. Mm-hmm. So we're not, we're not threatening anybody. In fact, I believe we're going to create a new golden age of product placement, uh, the first golden age of brand integration because of the ease of which is going to be possible to do something which was previously difficult, I think, as probably polite. Going back to your description of it earlier, getting on set, getting the approvals, making sure you got the the right model. I'll give you just one example. I spoke to a company in Venice Beach who's working with Hewlett-Packard to do printer integrations. Well, in order that, that they can cover all of the countries for the reshoots, they got a warehouse full of over 100 printers. Mm-hmm. And they have to remember, oh, for this scene, is this HP XYZ ABZ uh, Model I? Oh, no, man, you said Model G. Oh. And they got to go get that Model G back, make sure they got the right model. It is laborious. It is, it is not fun for anybody involved. 
Totally. Especially if you're the poor director who just felt he was going to wrap up at six and go have something to eat, and now he's told he's got to stay on set and refilm for another three hours. Right. That's not fun. Well, That's not fun. It's not fun, but luckily those types of mistakes, if you're working with the right agency, shouldn't happen too often. So that's a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's not usually part of our day, (laughs) typically. My my ambition, Stacey, is to take that expression used with very much tongue-in-cheek, but also a sigh of realism, the expression, we'll fix it in post, and swap it out for the brand integration industry with we'll fix it with riff. Right. No, that's terrific. And so where do you see this technology going? You said in 18 months you'll be able to actually be movable with the products and brands that you are integrating. What do you think the future is? The future is very exciting. Uh, Our roadmap is predicated by cloud-based GPU, that's graphic processor units, cloud-based rendering. The number of GPUs in the cloud today is sufficient to do the kind of things that we're looking at. In the future, the number of those processors will grow exponentially, and the power of those processors will grow exponentially. As they grow, so will our capability and we'll be able to change more of what you see on the set, on, on the screen, and we'll be able to do more interesting things with the content. Sure. But that's for the future. That's an exciting future. It is, it is, it really is. So for our listeners who are interested in learning more about Riff, how do they get a hold of y'all? Where do they go? You can visit our website, www.riffryff.co, not .com.co. Um, and they can visit the website and follow up from there, or they can just email me directly. I'm pretty open. I am just Roy at riff.co, and I'm very good at getting back to people. That's awesome, Roy. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners today? Yes. You've been a delight to speak to, and it's very kind for you to uh, give an opportunity for somebody new to this industry and doing something new, the chance to share Uh, our story. And I want to say thank you very, very much to you for the opportunity. Of course. I am very much so embracing all things branded content. And I really, truly believe that stories are told better for brands as well as content through the partnerships that we can build for them. So it's important for everyone to understand and know the technology and the options that are out there so that they can elevate not only their brand, but also their production. And I do see Riff as being a contributor to that and a potential forefront leader in this space. And I'm excited for y'all's success. Well, thank you very much. And thanks again for the chance to talk to you. Of course. Roy, thank you. And, and for all of our listeners tuning in today to Marking Mistakes and How to Avoid Them, again, Roy has provided us a tremendous look into not the future, but the today. And I greatly appreciated his time. Roy, thank you. And I'll chat with all of you again on our next podcast.